The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. morning I'm continuing looking for a couple more weeks at what I've called billboards or snapshots, I'm not sure what the right word is, but demonstrations of great moments in the life of Christ. And I say to you again, there are any number of things I could have chosen to continue uh, talking about along this vein. For example, we've not be speaking about the baptism of Christ or the transfiguration and many other things. The raising of Lazarus, certainly a great miracle moment. But I'm choosing things that I would hope would fix in your minds the greatness of Jesus, the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And one of those moments is found in the first chapter of the book of Acts. I'm going to read a bit more than what I said. I I think I'll start at verse 1. And listen to this conclusive, marvelous scene witnessed by disciples of Jesus 40 days after his resurrection from the dead. I'll read beginning at verse 1. Luke writes, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and to all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of our God, which abides forever. I have an older friend in the ministry who's been retired for some years now. I'm not going to use his name because potentially what I'm going to tell could embarrass him if you connected with who it is. But I'll call him John, not his name. When he was younger, John had a habit of kidding around a lot with 
remarks that people sometimes found humorous and sometimes not. And one day I heard about uh, a remark of his that really sort of backfired, you would say. He was being interviewed, John was, as a candidate for a pastor position in another state. And uh, the interview was going well, and he uh, was asked many questions about doctrine and practices of the ministry and personal things. And he said it was going well. He felt like there was a good vibe and that it would be pretty positive that he would be offered this position. But the next thing that happened was that several committee members said, well, let's take you on a tour of the church facility. So they did that, and uh, they eventually entered the sanctuary. I've seen a picture of this fairly distinctive sanctuary, which has a large stained glass window about 20 feet high behind the central pulpit. And the window is done in a very modern, uh, modern art, abstract kind of way. It's not realistic stained glass art. And it's somewhat garish in the colors and the, I would say, very 1950s or 60s in the style that it represents. It shows Jesus ascending into heaven, which is actually a fairly common theme of stained glass windows in churches. He's arising and his arms are out, extended to the disciples from whom he's departing. Well, you might know that someone on the committee asked my friend John, what do you think of our window? And he answered with a chuckle and was kidding. Well, he said, Jesus looks like Rocket Man blasting off with his jetpack. Well, the air turned chilly. And no one spoke for a moment. And John immediately sensed that he would bite his tongue off if he could take that remark back. He was not offered the position. And in fact, later on, he learned that the window that he had kidded about had been donated by the chairman of the search committee. (laughs) This is true. And worst of all, it was a memorial for his son who had been killed in Vietnam. Way to botch an interview. That's the only minister I know who lost a position due to the ascension of Christ. Well, stained glass does not place the ascension of Jesus Christ before us. In fact, you realize there is no stained glass in our sanctuary. But we do, most Sundays, say the Apostles' Creed. We didn't today, but we usually do say Christ ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. It's an article of our creed, a cardinal doctrine. And last week I suggested to you that we are guilty, myself as well as anyone else, of occasionally putting the resurrection in a box and keeping it on a shelf and only taking it down for Easter. Well, if that's true of the resurrection, the ascension fares even worse because we do not follow the liturgical calendar that some Protestant churches do where there's an ascension day that you actually emphasize that doctrine. And so the ascension gets probably even less attention from us than it ought to, for sure, as something that really is a very important truth. And I ask that we think about it a little bit today. Acts 1, of course, is the only actual snapshot or narrative discussion of the happening itself. 
And it's so simple. It only is a couple verses. It just very gently with no drum beat or anything before it says they were looking and Jesus was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. That's all there is. Very simple, very matter of fact. Told, by the way, by Luke, the doctor, who also told of the virgin birth in a very matter of fact way. A man of science who didn't have a problem at all with reporting miracles as true happenings. Forty days after his resurrection, we're told, Jesus was bodily taken out of the sight of his disciples on the Mount of Olives. He went home to his father, reported in a very simple, matter-of-fact way here in Acts chapter 1. And Luke doesn't apologize at all for what he tells. The ascension accomplished, you see, the opposite of what the virgin birth did. The preexistent God, the second person of the Trinity, came into our midst in the body of a young woman and gained flesh. We call it the incarnation, the enfleshment of God. How does, the, how does this scene in Acts, the ascension, relate to the virgin birth? It's their bookends, you see. Jesus obtained a body in the virgin birth. He kept that body and took it to glory in the ascension. I want to think about it today. First of all, asserting it as a plain fact of biblical history. Secondly, seeing that it has significance for Christ himself. And thirdly, seeing that it has significance for us as well. Again, I say, just like the Bible reporting Moses being at the burning bush or the Red Sea opening before the children of Israel, the Bible reports this ascension as a plain fact of biblical history witnessed by real people. He rose up. He was taken up. The implication is a force acting upon him, although it doesn't exclude the idea that he himself was willing it or participating in it by divine power, but he was taken up and a cloud obscured him. Clouds in the Bible are usually symbolic of glory. The idea of the glory of God enveloping Christ and and shrouding him and taking him away as people looked on. By the way, the visual words here in 9 to 11, if you look at them, looking on, sight, gazing, looking, it's very much an emphasis that human beings saw this. Jesus was not vaporized. His humanity did not cease. He in his real human form, possessing two arms and two legs and his same head was taken in a body into glory, into heaven. Verse 10 says heaven. John Calvin asked a question when I read it in his uh, sermons on Acts. I was surprised by the question asked by him. He said, are we to think he occupied a celestial cottage somewhere amid the planets? What are we supposed to think? Heaven is the place where God dwells. And it's not a place that GPS or map coordinates can find for you. Many of you know that since my wife and I moved to a new home, a new cottage in a retirement community a year ago, as far as I know right now, they still haven't got our street on GPS. So we're having to explain to people all the time, well, you go down this street, which is on GPS, and then you'll come to our street, which isn't. And uh, it's a little awkward, 
Not sure when that's going to get straightened out. But we don't find heaven on GPS, do we? But it's another plane of existence. It's the place where God dwells. Now, there's a lot of supporting Scripture, even though I said there's only one actual transcription here of the event it is referred to in a lot of places in Scripture, well attested. Psalm 110 predicted the ascension long ago when the psalmist wrote, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies into your footstool. Peter wrote about it. Peter was present there. First Peter 3.22, he claims Christ, quote, has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. The book of Hebrews is a book where we don't know the author, but we certainly know he was much blessed by God in, in his inspiration. Hebrews 1.3 says that after his triumph at the cross, Jesus did this, quote, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. If you sit down in the presence of majestic power, you have majesty yourself. Otherwise, you ought to be either standing up in respect or flat on your face. Jesus sat down with the majesty on high. Hebrews 4, 14 further says, We have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Another text, Ephesians 4, 9 says, He who descended to earth, that is, is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. We shouldn't be troubled by the fact that we have only one narrative description of this event. I don't think any of you, no matter what your age, would question the historical fact that President John Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas on November 22, 1963. You didn't have to be alive then. But there was a filmed account of that. I wonder how many of you remember the odd name of Abram Zapruder. He was famous as the gentleman, just an ordinary citizen, who happened to have a movie camera. And he had his movie camera in hand as the president's Lincoln drove by and it was fascinating, fascinating and horrifying to see the Zapruder film, which the government, of course, has now, of the president's head actually exploding from a bullet. We didn't need 15 Zapruders taking film to prove to us that the president was dead. One film was certainly significant enough to make it convincing. And likewise, Acts 1 being the only narrative description given in Scripture of the ascension is plenty to prove to us that this was an actual event. The fact that, in fact, it is not built up with drum rolls and legions of angels and all kinds of descriptive things that man might have put in there, just simply stated he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. That sounds more realistic to me than if there were drum rolls and legions of angels involved. So we can say this is a plain fact of biblical history described as it happened by eyewitnesses and attested by many side references from other passages. Secondly, it's important to realize what the ascension signified for Jesus Christ himself. It was a cornerstone event. 
the event in which he passed from normal existence in this world after his resurrection to his ascended, glorified role as king and judge of the universe. It was a return to glory that he had before he descended in the person of a child at Bethlehem. You know, I'm sure there are many here who served in the military or have had family members in the military, and you've been part of a welcome home of somebody from a tour of duty, either as the one returning or a family member, perhaps, of a soldier or sailor or airman. And you know how sweet that is. If somebody's coming home and they're unscathed, unwounded, and not killed, of course, from that military service, what a great reunion you have after months or maybe even years. There are people here who've been in the Gulf Wars or Afghanistan or Syria or someplace, or maybe longer ago, of course, in places like Vietnam or Korea. And you know how the film gets on the evening news. You know, here's the the bus that carried families to the airstrip where the plane has just landed and the military folk are coming down the ramp and somebody turns the crowd loose and a wife goes tearing across the tarmac and leaps into her husband's arms. What a day of joy. You don't have to explain that joy. All you have to do is watch it unfold. It's marvelous. Well, think of the embrace, if we may speak this way, of God the Father for His Son returning as conqueror, returning unscathed despite of the horrible things that happened to him. Hebrews 12 speaks of Jesus calling him the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. He had prayed for this in John 17, the night before the cross. He prayed in his high priestly prayer, Father, Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the world began. And now that's been accomplished. What a great thing. You think of the reunion of father and son in the parable of the prodigal son, when, of course, it was a disobedient, wayward son who had departed from his home, and the father greeted him back with forgiveness and grace. If that was true... Think of the opposite, of a victorious, obedient son, obedient unto death and disgrace and shame and blood and pain and isolation, all that. Colossians 2 said Christ, in his errand to the earth and to the cross, disarmed the powers and authorities that were not even entirely of this world, although they were represented in real people of this world with spears and and whips in their hand. Jesus came back having earned the name of a great champion. Philippians 2 says it, that he who went down so low to make himself a servant, Philippians 2 says God has bestowed on him what? A name above every other name in heaven or on earth that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and tongue confess that he is L-O-R-D. Lord of everything, Lord of nations, Lord of the heavenly bodies, Lord of every creature ever created. This is the coronation. And Christ is Lord when he returns home to be king 
over all. And in addition to those great things for him, the ascension meant another thing, and it's here in our text. It meant the pledge of Christ's final return to history. Notice verse 11. There are angels there, apparently, who spoke. They're just called men in white robes, emphasizing how ordinary angels can be. They don't always have to be glorious beings that stun people with their appearance. Two men stood there in white robes and said, Why are you standing here looking? This Jesus who was taken into heaven will come in the same way, suddenly, wonderfully, business as usual, some day of the week, some Wednesday, some Friday. He will come, and God will give us a glorious revelation of his Son as he comes again to be the climax of the ages. That promise is here too. Well, we should speak thirdly then about what the ascension of Christ means to every one of us as a believer today. It should be a cherished doctrine that tells us that the incarnation of God in flesh never ended. He who came wearing human flesh in the person of a baby with Mary, his mother, holding him, left this world in glorified flesh, his humanity certainly did not vaporize or disappear. And he believe, we believe he bears the ugly wounds and scars of the cross as emblems of honorable suffering. Even today, we sang in our first hymn, Behold his wounds, yet visible above. The church believes it is orthodox doctrine that Christ today, if we were to see him as he is, we would see a man, not a ghost, not a spirit. We would see a man and we would see the marks of that body on its hands and his feet and his side that he received in this earth. The theologian John Owen wrote of this. He said, it is a fundamental article of faith that Christ in heaven is in the same body wherein he dwelt here on earth. The Puritans had much to say about this. People don't say much about it today because I wonder if they believe it. But another nameless Puritan is quoted as having said, now we know that human dust sits on heaven's throne. That's a wonderful way to say it, isn't it? Our very body, Christ's body, is on the throne of heaven. He took his humanity back to heaven with him. And so the greatest thing that we can say is someone like us and yet utterly unlike us is on the throne of heaven today as the one and only mediator between man and God. Way back in the book of Job, I was privileged to study Job with you. I guess it was more than a year ago now. We looked through some, through some things in Job. And there's a one place where Job, in the midst of his great misery feeling that God has cast him off and he doesn't know where to turn and he wants to be able to speak to the Lord but doesn't feel he can and Job prays at one time he says oh that there might be someone who would arbitrate between us that is between himself and God he feels out of touch with God oh if someone would just arbitrate between us putting a hand on me and a hand on God and bring us together well Job's prayer is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 2.5 says there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. I believe Paul wrote very consciously there. 
He didn't say uh, mediator between God and man who is Christ Jesus. He said the man, Christ Jesus. I believe he intended to emphasize the manhood, the real enfleshment of the one who remains our glorious mediator today. So we know that here's someone we can come to. We sang the song a few minutes ago. I love that song we sang. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for who? Me! Because he's like me and yet unlike me entirely in his glory, but like me in his flesh. He came and he bore suffering and he bore alienation and he bore shame and all these things for me. You can say that too. It was for you. So he is perfectly qualified to do what Job wanted someone to do, bring me and God together and reconcile and break down the wall of division that existed because of my sin. You heard from Romans 8 in the affirmation of God's grace earlier in this service. Another part of it is Romans 8.34 that asks the question, who is it that condemns me? Christ Jesus who died and was raised to life is at the right hand of God interceding for me. And later Romans 8 challenges with another question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And you know the answer is nothing. Armed with a promise like that, you and I should be able and ready to walk through fire. Augustine was famous for his prayers, many of which are repeated in writings of his. And one time he said many hundreds of years ago, Lord, you ascended from before our human eyes and we turned back to our daily lives grieving only to find that you were right there in our hearts. By the Holy Spirit, this Christ who ascended on high is present with his people. He left us temporarily in order to be with us permanently via the gift of his Holy Spirit. He said, it's to your advantage that I go away because if I don't, the Spirit can't come and he'll be your comforter, he'll be your guide. He'll be the one that shows you all the things God wants you to know. Although he is seated at the right hand of God's mighty power today, he's there so that Jesus Christ could be with us. And that he is. He absolutely is now and forever with his people to the very end. Thank you, Lord. Father, what a wonder. This thing described so simply He was taken up from them and disappeared in a cloud. And we could say, oh, glory. What glory? He's gone ahead. He took his flesh, weak flesh in which he was able to die. He took it and he bears the emblems of that flesh, the scars, the awful wounds, as a reminder to all that he was the champion over the enemy of death. Father, there are some weak, faltering ones here today who, like Job, feel like they have no way to come to you, no way to talk to you, no way to reason out or ask the questions that are burning in their minds. 
would you reveal to them this one who is at your right hand, the wonderful intercessor and high priest, the wonderful mediator, Jesus Christ the Lord. How we praise you for him. Amen.